for those of you who have been here for the last couple of weeks, you know we've gone through some pretty heavy structural elements of research. So on what I would say is the same coin, the two sides of the same coin of flexible dieting, you've got structure, you've got flexibility. And uh, uh, I'll mention this again, it's just been a very odd thing for me as the guy who brought flexible dieting into this industry for it to be in such disarray and chaos that now I feel like I'm completely at the other goal line having to make cases for structure. It's like, you know, that's that's exactly what I was rebelling against 27 years ago when I started all this. And now I have to go defend that which I was fighting against because everybody over here has just, you know, gone gone crazy. So uh, my, my hobby horse for the last year or longer has really been to teach people why meal planning, why structure, why, why everything that goes into planning is valuable and we should use that in part. That's our home base, but then learn how to be flexible. And that has led me to some of the some of the topics we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, where, how do you define structure? Structure in what? Does that mean I only eat, you know, these super amazing high quality health foods? Does it mean that every day has to be the exact same amount of calories or the exact perfect macronutrient profile? You know, what is structure? And I and I start by defining what we've done over the last couple of weeks, which is to look at, you know, what are we actually trying to do? What is the goal? The goal is body composition management. The goal is often body fat loss. And so how do we make that happen? What's the structure that gives us the most bang for our buck? And I, I centered it all around the metabolic switch. And that is the physiological phenomena of, of you going from a glucose dominant energy source for you know how all the cells in your body are functioning to using a higher percent of body fats as energy. You know, a, a, a real thing, the metabolic switch describes how that process happens. And we've gone through all of the steps of, you know, that, that can mean simply that you're in a calorie deficit. And then you're going to gradually move that metabolic switch. And that may take three, four or five days. And then you're going to get there and you're going to hold that position with a pretty small margin for error because your, your calories are such that you're, you're being very responsible. You're losing weight in a way that I think is, is healthy and good and sustainable, but you can also get there a little bit faster. You can then start employing time-restricted feedings. You can decide, okay, maybe I really do want to to create this fasting window. Normally I, you know, eat a late night snack and then I eat right away in the morning and maybe I can kind of spread that out a little bit. What's the value in that? So we, we went through that research for the last two weeks. Then the next step would be, um, you know, an actual intermittent fasting plan, something that's really structured. Maybe you do go all the way to a 16 hour window, which I don't think is necessary, but if you, if you stopped at 12 or 14 hours, totally fine. What's more important than that is how you structure your, your meal eating window. So then we have to make sure that in between those meals, you've got enough space, enough time where you have zero calories so that you can, you can keep that metabolic switch leaning in the direction you want, in the position you want, and you keep losing body fat. So remember this one statistic, 
with the exact same amount of calories per week or per month, you can lose up to 50% more body fat because you manage that metabolic switch to its best level of efficiency. I'll say that again, same amount of calories, up to 50% more body fat loss because you get into that metabolic position and you stay there. There is a lot of overlap with ketogenic dieting because you're getting close to ketosis, but you're not going all the way in. I'm not a keto guy. You guys know that. I'm not a fan. It's just not good for you. It's, it's, the, it's the worst way to diet for sustainability and health reasons. But when I talk about these things, a lot of people are going to see that overlap and they're going to think, wait a second, he's really kind of talking like I should just do keto. That's, you know, that's what they talk about and it's going all the way over here, but, but it's not all the way into keto. You're still using carbs. You're still eating the foods you like. You're still eating in restaurants, but this is why structure is important. We even went over the health values, the, the decreases of risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, uh, you know, BMI going out of control, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, just aging, the, 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 the uh, thickness of your telomeres on your chromosomes, you know, all of those things that these systemic inflammatory improvements, all because you're simply creating enough space in your meal planning for proper glucose disposal. So those are all the reasons why structure matters. Structure has to be our foundation. But this week, we're going to talk about flexibility. So does flexibility just mean, okay, this is my structure. When I'm being flexible, I just get naked and run through the buffet line at Pizza Hut. Like I can just eat whatever I want whenever I want. That's that's flexibility. Uh you know, no, there are certain ways to be flexible that still work to your advantage. So you can certainly be flexible with food sources. That was always the primary component of flexible dieting as I created my methodology 25 to 30 years ago. It was simply to say, you don't have to eat just chicken and broccoli six times a day. You don't have to eat tilapia and rice every day you can eat different foods. You know, let's break it down to the math. Let's break it down to the macronutrients and, and you, you work out the exchanges that you want and then we can go from there. So that's, that's my starting point foundation for flexibility. But I wanna back up into a couple things that are even more foundational. Uh, when I mentioned I was gonna do this particular topic this week, uh, Dr. Kevin Brunacini, my coaching partner, uh, sent me this, this article from the Journal of Health Psychology. Uh, how does thinking in black and white terms relate to eating behavior and weight gain? So that title again, black and white thinking. Then I also looked up a, in the journal that the health psychology report, the interactive effects between flexible and rigid control of eating behavior on body weight. So the first one, the first piece of research we're going to talk about is just black and white thinking. How does that dogmatism in your mindset affect your nutrition? How does it affect your obesity? How does it affect even things like hunger? That black and white thinking, carbs are bad, can't eat carbs. That's black and white thinking. Uh, you know, keto, you have to do keto, you know, black and white thinking. Can't eat after six o'clock at night. That's black and white thinking. Then the, the other uh, 
review that I looked at is the interactive effects, like what's actually happening behaviorally. How does that translate to what our ultimate goals are? So before I get into some of the things that these, these researchers concluded, when you talk about topics like this, I mean, this is the you know, Journal of Health Psychology and, and Health Psychology Report. These tend to be more qualitative research pieces. They're, they're doing surveys. They're looking for correlations. It's not often quantitative research. You know, we've gone over a lot of quantitative stuff in the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, okay, we gave these subjects this amount of food, and then we did a hundred thousand data collection points a day and, and measured biochemistry. And so we can look at all of this data. That's qualitative research. Uh, I'm sorry, quantitative research. Qualitative is, is looking again at, at just, just a lot of things that, that you can you can kind of create a narrative about, and it often gives you a direction. It often gives you a, a, a flow path so that then you can perhaps dig in a little bit deeper into quantitative research. So in, in the second piece that I'm going to go over, they, they even did talk about the most quantitative things that they could surmise, like, you know, if, if people did this or if this was their particular mindset, they answered these surveys this way, here is in a concrete way what their average BMI was, you know, how, how, how did they struggle with body fat and so forth. And so you can, you can get as far as you can into real hard data, but, but you'll, you'll see what I mean as we get into this. Um, you know, forgive me as I look over here to my, my different screen for some notes, but um, here, here's the first thing that happened that when they looked at some of these correlations, people that had high dichotomous thinking, people that answered these surveys with these black and white dogmatic perceptions had the highest chance of quitting a diet and regaining body fat. So, so think of anybody who's just got a super high opinion. This diet is a right way to go. This one is, you know, awful. This is how you do it. This is how you don't do it. Anybody with that closed minded perspective, they were the first ones to quit a diet and first ones to regain. So their diet that was perfect, you know, they were the ones failing the most people who were more open-minded thinking, well, I don't know, let me try it. I'll, I'll do this. You know, I've done everything else. Let me try this. And, and they applied things in a little bit more inquisitive, curious way. They were more successful. Um, in, in the other survey, when they were looking at real behavior, rigid control, when, when, when somebody said, this is exactly how I diet and it has to be this way. And I eat at the, these times and so forth. Listen to this. They had more frequent and more intense food cravings, which is psychological, right? Like you can eat the same amount of food, you can plan it however you want, but just because they had that rigid mindset, they were the ones who experienced the most psychological kind of whiplash between hunger, cravings, uh, even intense food cravings. They had a higher BMI, which kind of gets into anxiety, Somebody is a real rigid, closed-minded person. Anything not within their scope of, of understanding is a threat. You know, that's, that's, that's where closed-mindedness really hurts people. Everything they don't trust, everything they don't know, everything they don't understand is a threat, creates high anxiety, and therefore those people were the ones with the highest BMI, highest rate of regain, highest rate of quitting. 
So we haven't even gotten to the application of how to be flexible. I'm, I'm still up here in the meta conceptual land of just what your mindset is like if you are a rigid thinker and you think that diets are you know one way or the highway. Um, they also had lower perceived self-regulatory success as a rigid thinker. So self-efficacy, the belief that you can win, the belief that you can change, the belief that you can succeed, rigid thinkers are lower on that outcome. Uh, you're getting a pretty good picture here so far. Like, don't be that person. Be a little bit more open-minded. Uh, everything good happens when you're a little bit more open. Uh, now, here's, here's I'm going to go through a little bit of a list. And so I'm going I'm to read it twice, once in a negative way, once in a positive way. But I, I wanted this quote to, to stand as they stated it in the research, because I think it's so profound. Both rigid and flexible dieting require the exertion of cognitive restraint. So flexible dieting doesn't mean just willy-nilly eat whatever you want. There, you're still in a calorie deficit. You still have a goal. So flexible dieting is, is still requiring some cognitive exertion. I think that's a, a, a huge thing to, to understand. But rigid control correlates to negative affect. So you're just a, a pissed off negative person. Uh, lower body appreciation. I'm never good enough. My, I'm, I'm fat. I'm ugly. Poor interoceptive awareness. So the ability to even understand what's happening in your body, you're lower on that. Um, more binge eating, an objective trait, and higher food preoccupation. So always thinking about food. This is what rigid dieting forces you into, or chicken or the egg, philosophical aside, maybe that's who you are in your personality traits. So that's why you're attracted to rigid dieting. You like black and white things. That got me into trouble a lot as a, as a young adolescent and young adult is I really, I like, I'm a black and white guy. I like concrete things. So I would gravitate towards those types of social constructs. I, I liked the black and white things. I wanted, I wanted a hill to die on with every cause. I wanted everything to be right or wrong. It took me a lot of growing up through my 30s and 40s to realize that, wait a second, that's just not the way life works. That's not the way anything works. But again, because of threat perception and, and just, you know, maybe even a little perfectionism, wanting to be right and think there's something right, um, you know, that, that's, where I, that's where I landed, that th those are my personality traits. So uh, yes, Stacey, I'm going I'm to read those again, but now I'm going to do it in a positive way. So flexible dieting correlates to positive affect. So it's not just a, a, uh, a negative affect pushed to the side. It's not just that you avoid it, but flexible dieting actually increased the positive affect of subjects. They started on their diet with, it, with flexibility and they got happier, not angrier. They actually went into the diet with some hope. Uh, higher, uh, let me see, higher body appreciation 
So they actually had, again, not just the absence of negative body appreciation, they started feeling more positive about their body. This, these are, that's a huge linguistic change um, or semantic change. They had better interoceptive body awareness. They had less binge eating, another objective trait, and they had lower food preoccupation. So just taking some of that air out of the balloon, you know, imagine, you know, anxiety like that, and you're a rigid thinker, this is going to be a rigid diet, everything's negative, there are consequences, if you do it wrong, it's going to fail, you, you have a higher risk of, of quitting the diet, and all of that changes to a positive mindset, much more positive mindset, when you simply give somebody a flexible diet, meaning, um, you know, hey, this is your diet, but let's talk about how to be flexible with it. If you don't want that for breakfast, let's have this for breakfast. I'm going to get into some more application points in a, in a couple of minutes here. But, um, you know, even just down to it, it's, it's okay to not be perfect. Like imagine having a mindset and perhaps a nutrition coach who says, okay, you know, this is the game plan. And here are some ranges, even if I'm giving you a macronutrient profile or an energy balance goal that I think is, is good for you, personally, as a coach, I never say, you know, here are your numbers. I say, here are some ranges. Let's see how we do it in these ranges. And then after we get into this for a couple of days, we're going to see where you naturally fall, what you think, how you feel. We'll adjust those a little bit. We're going to make this fit you. And we're going to make sure it's, it's still on track to hit your goals with the best efficacy. So already you can see that that takes some of that rigidity out. You know, this isn't just me giving you a diet saying this is the way it is. Uh, if, if you remember me talking yesterday, those of you who are on the call, um, a client came to me and said that she worked with a coach where she was questioning some things, just asking, what about this? What about that? And he sent her a video message cussing her out. You're a fucking failure. You're never going to make it. You're, you, know, you shouldn't even be on this team. All of my other clients do it exactly like you're supposed to. You shouldn't even be here. That's rigidity. That's first of all, that's somebody who should be in jail. But, um, you know, a lot of us perceive diets that way, even without that intensity. A lot of us perceive that, you know, if I don't do it right, you know, it's just not going to work. So your mindset going in of, you know, this is this is my goal. How close can I get to this merging my preferences, my needs, the foods I like, my schedule, my occupation? you know, the, the way life changes day to day with my family, how can I make this work? You automatically create this mindset of flexibility and, and you're on your way to getting all of those positive benefits that I mentioned. So let's, let's talk about how we can apply this. What, what are some of the areas of flexibility regarding food, but also we can continue talking about this flexibility of mindset. Uh, if you're a client of mine, you, you've heard this a million times. You have a week that things didn't work out. Maybe, maybe you actually did have you know some extra food. You had a couple of social events, and you didn't lose. Have I ever scolded a client? Never. Have I ever said, "Well, now it's now you know you idiot. Now we have to start over, and the metabolic switch is way down here." Never. 
what you hear me say is, well, that's fine. You know, Let, let's see what we can learn from that. And, you know, a neutral week is not necessarily a negative thing. You know, that's a positive thing. You didn't, you didn't gain 12 pounds. And so what you learned was that when you eat this way, as you did, that's just kind of a maintenance week. You know, we, we learned something positive there. And, and when you go into everything nutritionally, especially, you know, you go back to my, my founding point here that even in a flexible diet there, you're in a calorie deficit. It's still, a, it's still a diet. There's still, there's still a cognitive assertion and exertion requirement. So there's pressure there. There's physiological pressure already. There's emotional and psychological pressure already. So how can we bring that down? And still we're having great results. Uh, you know, the, another part of mindset is expectation. We talked about that yesterday. That was the whole theme of yesterday's talk. Am I expecting to lose six pounds of body fat a week? Or do I understand that that's physiologically impossible? Am I expecting to lose an amount that's physiologically perfectly fine and reasonable and sustainable and allows me to still, you know, live a normal life without starving and so forth? You know, that's part of flexibility. Uh, the, the other parts, of course, coming back to food are simply how you create that environment for when you're going to be flexible. Um, I, I mentioned that, you know, most of, most of my food throughout the day is, is pretty routine, pretty normal. Uh, I have, you know, for breakfast every day, you know, once I get to work, I, I have a, a half a cup of oatmeal. I cut up an apple in it. I put a scoop of vanilla protein powder in it, cinnamon. It's my breakfast every day, but I had a physical this morning. And then I had to rush back to my office and get ready for this. And so the last thing I wanted was to sit in the kitchen for 15 minutes and making all this stuff. So I grabbed a bagel, put some peanut butter and jelly on it. And that was my breakfast. And I did it without any hesitation, no stress, no anxiety. I'm not dreading the scale tomorrow. I don't think that I failed. That's just life. Calorically, it's probably very close to what I would have any other day. And my next meal, I'll be right back on track. After this call, I'll go downstairs and you guys know what I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat a bagel with four or five ounces of turkey, slice of Swiss cheese, some mustard, and I'm back to work. Because th that's, that's part of my structure, two sides of the same coin, but I can employ and utilize flexibility when it helps me. And, and I still use it in a way that keeps me on track for my goals, which today, by the way, those of you guys who know me, I hit a new low. I'm, I'm 15 pounds down since Thanksgiving. So thank you, Dan, on my way. I'm, you're you're my, my role model, man. If, if I had not met you last year, I, I might just have just coasted into retirement like this. But now you got me thinking like, I don't know, maybe maybe that comeback is in there somewhere. Maybe, you know, I've you know, Dan's tagline is not done yet. And I just can't get that out of my brain now. So, um, so, you know, I have a goal. I'm, I'm just like many of you and, and, and I'm excited about it. I'm working hard. I'm relearning some of these things and how they apply to my physiology personally. And all of the things that I have taught my clients for almost 30 years, I've of course used as a professional bodybuilder but having not competed for 15 years, I've used them more for just maintenance and health. And, you know, my, my training and, and my functionality is just as important to me as ever. 
But now I have been using flexible dieting for those maintenance and health reasons, not necessarily fat loss reasons. Now I've got the opportunity to kind of ramp up the intensity and work toward a goal, which has been really, really fun. So that's, that's all I wanted to cover so far in just how flexibility can be just as important and tied to objectivity, but really looking at first that frame of reference, that mindset and what rigidity and in black and white thinking, thanks to Kevin sending me this, this research article. And then, you know, what, what's the real outcome of that behaviorally? Those are the two things I wanted to tie together today. So I would, I would love to hear any questions or comments or experiences you guys have, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll finish our hour that way. And you guys don't, don't be shy. Just, just unmute and, and fire away. I'll start you off there, Joe. All right. Now you mentioned flexibility in regards to food choices. How about flexibility in regards to uh, macronutrients? As long as caloric uh, intake stays the same, would the only thing that suffer would be uh, body composition, but not necessarily fat loss? That's an excellent question. Thank you so much, Dan. Um, so this is where, like in, in my scenario today, I, I definitely gave up some protein this morning. But, you know, first think in terms of, of how you measure success in terms of flexible dieting and macronutrient tracking. And so I may get to the end of today and my protein is down, let's say 25 grams, let's say because of the peanut butter on the bagel, my fat's up 10 or 15 grams. I have the opportunity if I want to kind of readjust that throughout the day. I can you know, drop a little fat, add a little protein. If, if that was my goal, you know, that's, that's okay. But meal to meal, hour to hour, it's not exactly like you, uh, thanks Stacy. Uh, not exactly like that matters. Like, like, you know, I, I already had to make that transition at breakfast. Does piling in or doubling my protein at another meal, does that actually help, you know, just for the sake of the numbers, you know, I would argue, no, I mean, I, if my protein is good at every other meal anyway, it's not. So I would just let that calorie exchange be a calorie exchange. And for the rest of my week, maybe there's a point in time that the, the situation is kind of flipped. You know, my, my wife made uh, these, these Cuban sandwiches the other night for dinner. And I mean, like, like slow roasted this pork loin thing. And just this thick, I, I probably had an eight ounce piece of, you know, pork in that sandwich panini press, the mustard, the pickles, everything like the perfect. I'm not a foodie, right? But it, when somebody else is making the food, I, I, I do appreciate it. Um, so, you know, my protein was probably twice as high at that meal. And, and, you know, fat was obviously a little higher because of that particular choice. But you know, that's okay. By the time I get to the end of the week, which I'm at today, today's the last day of my tracking week, I hit a new low. So I, you know, I, I really doubt in a 168 hour week where I'm consuming dozens and dozens of meals that those types of fluctuations would cause any change in lean body mass accumulation or body fat loss. So, so that, that's my answer when you're talking about staying calorically within the range. But again, let's say I just had a day where, you know, calories really did just go high. Maybe I was 500 calories too high today. 
if I have a goal of fat loss, especially kind of a performance goal, I, I would historically try and chip away at that for the rest of the week. I may not try and drop my calories down an extra 500 the next day, but I might try and whittle away a hundred the next day, 50 the next day, you know, just so I can get my weekly averages because I am kind of OCD. And, and so the numbers do matter to me. I, I want that symmetry. Um, but in reality, again, over the course of a six month diet, would that even matter? You know, you really have to more than anything control the behavior that causes you to just stop dieting. You know, as I mentioned, the rigid, you know, thinkers often do. Um, so I, I, I try to minimize it, Dan, but I do look for those levels of flexibility as kind of one level at a time. You know, here's, here was my goal. This is the center of the bullseye. You know, that next ring is this, that next ring is this, as long as I'm staying on the target, I'm okay. Yeah. Now, based on what you said, uh, here's what I'm hearing. You tell me if I kind of got it. It seems as if the week, uh, the day is more important than the meal. The week is more important than the day. The month is more important than the week. And the overall goal is impo more important than any given point, you know, time frame you want to choose. That, that's kind of what I'm hearing. You think that's a good summation? Yeah, this, you, you just took me to uh, like the old woman in the shoe riddle for the for kids, like the the cat eats the mouse and then something else eats the cat. Uh, so yeah, you're exactly right. Like these, these things are, yeah. I mean, keep your eye on the big picture, you know, look at the overall arc and trajectory of your plan and your goal. And, and I think that also alleviates a lot of stress. If you're so myopically concerned with the perfection of every single bite at every single meal, that's a pretty rough way to live, you know, even with a goal. So you, you said it perfectly, Dan. Perfect. Anybody else who's got some questions or comments? Amanda, yes. Um, I can relate to this because I, when you were talking about having a very rigid diet, I'm, I'm always very focused on like the numbers, like the macros. And I, it's funny because this, this conversation, every single thing that you've mentioned has been like, yep, that's me. Yep, hmm. that's me. And then kind of going back to what we talked about yesterday, it's like, well, yeah, no wonder why I've been having like these binging episodes and this such as hard, this hard time with my reverse diet. Um, because I was so like really strict and I would freak out whenever, um, you know, life happens and I can't stick to my routine of what I'm going to eat, you know? Um, even now being in my off season where I'm, I'm building, I'm like trying to figure out, okay, like I have that black and white, that very black and white, uh, mindset of, well, it's, it's just false thinking, <laughs> you know, like going into my workout in the morning. Well, I'm going to work out fasted because I'll tap into fat. Um, let me just do my cardio while I'm, while I still haven't eaten anything yet. Um, and so it's just really making me think like, what am I doing? I'm failing myself by not just like having that open flexibility that you were talking about, just being open-minded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I go back to, I mentioned I was younger. I was very, very black and white in my thinking. And that's just, you know, when you look at personality traits and, and you could do personality assessments, like I'm just very high in those things. What really kind of broke me of that is I would have these worldview, you know, 
foundations. Like this is the way things are politically, religiously, like this is, this is how everything is. And then I would change and I would say, wait a second, those that I was lied to, that was, it was almost like being in a cult. Like that wasn't true. And, and now thank goodness I'm right now, now I've got it. And then 10 years would go by and I'm like, wait a second, I was wrong again. And after you do that two or three times, you start thinking, can I be right about anything? Like, 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 why am I so aggressively pursuing everything to be right, wrong, good, bad, up, down, hot, cold? Like, why does everything have to be that perfect binary of rigid thinking? So it, it you know, it took me half of my life to start getting over that. And even now it's because it is just ingrained personality traits. It's, that's my default. You know, I've, I've got a make sure I keep it arm's length away from there and, and always even question myself. That's part of being a scientist. A scientist has to be open to everything. I, mean, I, I want to prove everything right or wrong in this context, but then keep looking because maybe that is wrong. So I, I think you're exactly right. It, it's, it's something that we all have to you know, look at in our own lives in many, many ways, but it, it really does express itself sometimes in these super high stress moments. Cause that's, that's when you, you funnel the most anxiety. There's a goal outcomes are on the line. You're putting everything into it. And so that's when you really need to just take a little bit softer approach and say, okay, let me go into this learning as much as I can, not feeling like I have to be right. Good, good comment. Any, anybody else? Questions? Roseanne, anything? Yeah, uh, I think this is a great topic. Uh, last year I did, so I'll just back up a bit. I had like over the 10 years of nutritional coaching, so many moms are like, I just don't, I want to be able to eat with my families. Like, how do I have something more than, you know, just chicken, broccoli, rice, and still stay on track? You know, how can I eat like that? And so, you know, and I mean, I, you hear this all the time, and uh, just trying to be a flexible eater, trying to have that structure with still having that flexibility to be human, to be able to eat with our families. And I, I just think that's so important. So last year, what I did was I each week, I would take a recipe, I'd take it apart, reconstruct it. So I still had the structure, but we said still then, but it was still something that we could all love and enjoy to eat. And so now I have over 50 recipes that, you know, clients can have. It's like, you know, you have like when you give yourself the choice and the options, it's a lot easier to stay on track. But I think too, um, it was Amanda who was talking. I think too, when we are so used to eating a certain way to those numbers and have that exact food work for us very hard to let ourselves have that chicken lasagna or that sort of thing but it's actually just giving yourself that opportunity and saying you know what will happen if I do try this and I'm still on track I still have the structure uh, but allowing a little bit of that flexibility yeah I have a lot of clients you know general population clients especially who don't track everything I do think that you know, at some point we have to learn the math and the language of nutrition. We have to, you know, I, we've talked about this so many times, but 
I don't have to look at the the package of bagels to know that it's got 55 grams of carbs. Like I know that because I've looked it up and I know what that means. I know what I need for my body for the day. And so I can just very quickly without any, any processing, just understand what is a good exchange. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll use a, a method with our clients where they're just, you know, tracking some food, getting into it, but then there's still kind of a free meal through the day. And that's actually practice for flexibility, like you said, uh, Roseanne. Um, so it may not be something as easy to measure as a you know chicken breast that you can weigh and a certain amount of salad and rice or potato or something else. Maybe it is something like lasagna with a lot of ingredients. It's going to be higher in fat. So what's what's a pretty good serving size? How do I know if I consume this in this amount that I'm still okay? And e even though it's a little bit muddy or mysterious in the fact that we just don't have a perfect calculation, you know, progress goes on. The scale's the same the next day. You still lose the exact same amount that week. And that's the way you start learning that, okay, you know, this is what flexibility means. It means I'm not always tied to the measuring cups and the food scale and so forth. So that's just one more way to exercise it. But, you know, we, we've got to think through all of those scenarios and just see if this is going to be a good tool for me to use. Um, so Nancy had asked, I'm not sure, hopefully she's still on, you know, what's an ideal body fat percentage for a 59 year old female. Um, I, you know, I, I have kind of a love hate relationship with body mass index and percentages and that kind of thing. And ideals, because we're all different. I, on my annual physical today, my, my BMI is 27 point something percent, which means I'm obese. Um, and you know, I can, I could go run a mile in seven minutes and I can squat and deadlift 400 pounds and, you know, you, you can't pinch that much body fat on my, my, my abs, but because of that much lean body mass, you know, I, ha I have 20 or 30 pounds more muscle than the average guy from 40 years of bodybuilding. You know, that's that BMI is not very valuable for me, but just in general, I would say for a, a female, you know, anytime you're in the 18 to 22% range, you know, that's what any nutrition textbook would tell you. You're probably healthy. If you want to get down to 15 to 18%, you're going to start looking pretty athletic. You're going to, you know, people are going to start noticing your shoulders and maybe you have a little vein in your biceps or something. You get, you get below 15%, you know, maybe towards 12%. Now you're starting to look like a model and uh, you, you get below 10% and you're, you're going to look like a pretty freaky bodybuilder. You know, now you got striations in your shoulders and, and that kind of thing. So you know, 20% or so is a good range to be healthy. And then anywhere below that, where you have it aesthetic or an athletic or a performance goal, you know, those are, those are kind of the ranges. Um, but, you know, depending on how you test it as well, if, if you got on a little cheap, you know, $30 bioimpedance scale, you can get at Walmart, you know, may not be that accurate. You're going to have to realize there may be a three, four, 5% margin of error for those ranges you did something that's more, more uh, akin to like a DEXA scan where it's going to be really, really close, you know, that's when you can trust those measurements a little bit more. But uh, in, any other questions or, or comments on, on flexibility in general and how we execute it? I think that I, I really love the idea of having macronutrient ranges instead of just having set numbers. I think just having ranges just you know, it spells relax, you know, and it, 
it really just puts things a little bit more at ease. It doesn't get, you know, that pressure isn't there to just meet those exact numbers. So having ranges has always allowed me and my clients to just, you know, you naturally fall into a, a spot where you evolve into your own spot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I like to do with clients and working with them is, you know, here's based on how you've been eating, based on my assessment of your, your genetics and your phenotype, you know, here, here's where I think we need to be. And, and I, I may be perfectly accurate, but yet there's still some margin for error for people to say, okay, well, I don't, I don't quite want that much protein and, and we, we know we don't need it. So that gives me more room for carbs. And then even day to day, you know, there's nothing, Roseanne and Dan, to your question earlier that says, if my goals are, let's say 125 to 135 grams of carbs per day, there's absolutely nothing that says I can't have 100 today and 170 tomorrow and 120 and 160. And, you know, as long as you're not going so far out of bounds that it's hard for your week, like it's, it's hard to eat you know, it's, it's okay to give yourself even that much flexibility. So, uh, Kevin, you got your hand up. So official over there. There we go. Um, I'll say to speak from my experience with, with struggling with obesity, viewing, viewing my world at that time was very, my, the, 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 the economist thinking that I had because I was very similar to you in terms of, rather black or white dichotomous thinking hence, uh, but being a 21 year old, that's really all I could rely on. But as I, and that's why I kept rebounding and regaining weights because I had these rather staunchy rules at the time and had no flexibility except when I was entitled to it. And that just wasn't going to cut it. But as I, as I grew within my academics and understood that, you know, I can't have dogma much as a scientist. You can't have dogmatic uh, viewpoints necessarily. And even if you do, you still need, like you're saying, you need to have that, that breathing space to know, well, I could be very wrong and I need to be open to the idea of change or modifying how I think. So as I learned to be, think more of a scientist in academia, I apply that to my health in a sense of this is not my last meal. I can, I can see things from a micro sense, a meso sense, and a macro sense of, of you know, variable uh, time variables, much like what you're touching upon, Dan. Uh, but just having that grace that I can be consistent enough, not going over those thresholds, but just knowing the evidence of I'm still making progress from whether you're looking at week to week, month to month, whatever, how you want to look at it. But um, the more I the more I saw as just what is the evidence of where am I at versus good or bad. It's just what is going on? How, where am I truly, how can I truly evaluate myself honestly and, and weigh that or evaluate that allowed me that space to move away from dichotomous thinking slowly, albeit, but nonetheless, um, I would say that's probably been the greatest it sounds so trite discovery of when I was in maintenance and that's what's made helping maintain successfully is because it's not game over just because I had this or did that or modify, you know, did something differently. It's just, it is what it is just like spending money. What do I do differently? 
to modify based on what I did. I don't just throw my 401k to the wind because I overspent by a dollar. I, you know, I think about it with evidence and practicality, but with ultimate behaviors underlying that. So I either prevent, prepare better, or look at it from a self-compassionate way rather than self-loathing. It's a really good point, Kevin. You just made me think I need to check and see how Bitcoin is doing today in my, my Robin Hood account. But uh, to, to your point, um, the, the proof is really in like what's happening. And if, it's, if, if the focus is on the, quote, perfection of the method, we forget to look at our real accomplishments. And for those of you guys who don't know Dr. Kevin Brunacini, he's somebody who lost 120 pounds uh, 10 years ago or so, has kept it off, had, has you know, finished his doctorate as a nurse practitioner, uh, is, is you know, inside of our company, my co-coach in the Flexible Dieting Institute. So you know, somebody who's actually lived it. It's, it's not just somebody who, who's read a book about it. You know, this is somebody who's lost 120 pounds and has kept it off, lived that life. And, and it did come down to, you know, being pretty flexible and being okay with, you know, maybe this week didn't go as great as I wanted, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to just throw it away and go search for a different method. So, so really well said. Um, I'm, I'm going to circle back to Nancy for just a second. Uh, she, she put an LOL. She's more worried about getting, you know, down from 34%. So uh, a really nice way to, to bring up the point that, you know, goals are so important. And Nancy, if, if you have a, a specific weight goal or a body percentage goal, you know, I would say, man, just, just wait until you get to 29. Like, like we, you know, when you break 30% body fat, you're in the twenties, you're going to look at yourself. You're going to look at that progress and say, that was, that was really something that was a huge change. And then, you know, maybe the goal is to eventually get to 25 in a certain amount of time. So that, that's where I think percentages and body mass in, indices and so forth are a little bit more usable, you know, just to show the progress, not necessarily to say good or bad, you know, oh, you made it. Here's your, here's your, your blue ribbon you won. It's over. It's just, you know, let's just see where we are on the scale and where we want to be and why. So, so well done. Anybody else before we wrap up here? Hey, Maybe. Joe. Yes, sir. Steve Dodd. Hey, uh, I think for rigidity, um, Kevin's backdrop today has probably drove everybody crazy that's on a rigid diet, looking at cookies flying behind him. But hey, you as someone who knows research and science, is there any research or science about um, someone being on a rigid plan and said, being told, no, you can't have a cookie, or no, you can't eat cake. Is there any research or science that shows that a person that's told no, they can't, does it more? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the underlying current of, of both of these particular studies. Um, but, but, you know, interestingly, there's, there's really not that much research on flexible versus rigid dieting. This, this is a pretty new concept. You know, it's, it's something that I started dabbling with 25, 30 years ago, and it's just kind of becoming normalized in pop culture, but also because of the, the wake that I created for all of the other coaches who have come up in the last 20, 25 years, 
so many of them now have gone into academia. You know, they're, they're PhDs doing research at universities. Uh, Kevin and I are actually doing a research study with Dr. Eric Helms, who's, uh, you know, on staff at University of New Zealand in their exercise science department. So Eric is a guy who sat in one of my lectures in California 20 years ago as a bachelor's degree student. And he was, you know, he, as a bodybuilder and somebody who's really interested in fitness, he, he decided, man, I'm, I'm going all the way. So he did his master's, did his PhD, and now he's actually doing research on this. So uh, uh, we, we have a couple people, some of his students and, and another one of my coaches and Kevin and, and Eric and I are, are going to start doing a series of studies uh, measuring even, even coaching methods with people. And, and that may be something we get into is something that specific. It's almost like the Stanford marshmallow study. So, so for anybody who doesn't know this one, this goes back like 30 or 40 years ago. They put kids in an office and they put a marshmallow on the desk and they said, I'm going to, I'm going to take off. I got to leave. I'll, I'll be back in about 15 minutes. Eat that marshmallow if you want it. But if, if you save it, when I come back, I'll give you two. So, you know, I think about half the kids, just like I would, I just grab the marshmallow and eat it. Like screw the second one. I just want what I want. And I want it right now. Like that's an impulsive thinker. The kids who would wait, like my, my wife would have sat there for a hundred years. She, she would be a skeleton in that chair today, waiting for that guy to come back to get the second marshmallow. That's, that's how much discipline she has. Those people, they've tracked them for decades after the people who had the self-restraint, they're happier, they have more stable relationships, they earn more money, they have better careers, because that kind of, of just, I don't want to use a word restraint, but ability to think beyond right now, the ability to take yourself out of that moment and think through the options and so forth. And, and so flexibility would, you know, I, I mean, my hypothesis, Steve, if we did a study like that, like we all know what that would, what that would, you know, show, you know, the outcomes are there when you tell somebody you can't do something, there's plenty of social psychology research to say that as soon as you tell somebody they can't do something, that's all they want to do. That's all they think about. And so, uh, I don't think there's anything that I, that I could find specifically like that, but I but I, I know it exists in other areas, and it might even in nutrition. Uh, have you have you ever noticed with clients so all the years you've been doing this that maybe a client that starts with you might eat uh, more sweets that type of thing, and as long as you don't take it away from them, just try to put some control in it that over a period of time, uh, either because of palate changing or whatever, that they tend to almost stop eating it all together? Absolutely. And, and this is where, first of all, having the flexibility to have some, and anecdotally with thousands of clients over decades, the ones who say, man, Joe, can I, can I just have one piece of chocolate after dinner every night? Of course you can. Hey, Joe, can I have one, one beer with dinner every night? Of course you can. Um, you know, you can, as long as there's that, that parallel thought between here's the science, the physiology, I have to make sure I'm behaving in a way that it aligns with my goals. 
But within those parameters, the, the, the level of flexibility that I can enjoy, you know, that's, that's a perfect example of that, Steve. And then you absolutely gradually just gain the confidence in, in your ability to be self-restrained a little bit and in the ability to, you know, that, that in the boundaries, your confidence in the boundaries, that this is how much I can have. And, you know, I, I go from having one little piece of chocolate once in a while to, of course, I can have that big piece of chocolate cake, you know, once a week or something when I go out to eat or I split it with my spouse, you know, it doesn't have to always be just this little micro amount. So, you know, ab- absolutely that changes. And I'm, I'm one of those people, you know, you, I've mentioned growing up with, with four siblings and with a lot of food scarcity and poverty and, you, you eat when you can eat and you get it and you hoard it and you just pound it down. You, you get your second or your third portion or in serving before it's gone, you know, like that stuff is ingrained in me. And yet over time, you know, with, with some pr- pretty high levels of cognition, initially, you learn not to do that, that you don't need to do those behaviors. Um, I'm not saying that I still don't hide a cookie or two from my kids uh, at home, but I don't feel the anxiety toward it. And I don't, I don't binge on those things anymore. And, and how about palate? How, how long does it typically take a human being's palates to adapt? Uh, and and not, the reason I'm asking that is as, as a young kid, they used to deliver whole milk to our home, you know, back in the mm. little jug on the front, you get the glass jars and, you know, they first came out with skim and my grandma used to buy skim and I used to have to go there. And it was like, it's so horrible drinking skim milk. And, uh, you know, I would be at Tony's house that had the elderly. And I'm, I'm so used to like a skim milk now that she poured some whole milk on in a glass for me. And it tastes like coffee creamer. Um does that have a lot to do with people that once they refrain from sugars for a while and start eating fruits, vegetables, and other sources for a standard period of time, start to get more sensitive to tasting sweets that they don't need as much? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know of any research that says you know it takes thirty six hours or you know this is the method to do it, but you know we we definitely know that happens pretty quickly. Um, you know, even somebody, for example, that's just you know sick for a few days and they don't eat as much, and then you go back to that one thing that you had, and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so sickening, sweet or something. And so, you you can and should condition your palate for sure. And a lot of that, it may, this is just not my field of expertise. So I may be saying things completely wrong, but you know, I, I don't know how much physiology changes and things like the taste buds and so forth. And I'm, I'm sure there's some resensitization. 10 um, days it takes. What's that? It takes 10 and, days for gustatory cells to regenerate. Okay. There you go. So, so there's your answer, Steve, 10 days. You get a, but, but I think even just lowering it a little bit at a time, like if I, if I were to say, okay, I'm going to start off with my cup of coffee with this much almond milk and a teaspoon of creamer and this much stevia or something. If I just kind of took that down by 5% every day, I could probably cut those things in half in, in a week or so and never even notice. So yeah, I think that's a uh, Kyle Frank gives Kevin the fist bump in the chat. He's uh, he's, 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 he's like the producer of the show and they're getting all the, all the good information. 
Um, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to come back to a question real quick by, by Michelle here for physique athletes, how much variance in macros is acceptable? Um, you know, I, I think definitely more than like five grams. Cause some coaches will say that, you know, here's how much carb you should have. And as long as you're within five grams, I think that's still a little too ridiculous because you don't even know what your calorie expenditure is per day, you know, based on activity, based on sleep, you, you could be so hyper-focused on being to the gram in these levels. And then you burned an extra 200 calories that day. And, you know, th then just even comparing it from like one Tuesday to the next Tuesday to the next Tuesday can be different, you know, even with the same workouts. And so I, I, I would tell people, you know, try to stay within about a hundred calories of each. This is, this is a pretty liberal range, but that means like 25 grams of carbs, if depending on your percentage, like let's say, let's say your goal is 125 grams of carbs a day. I would say, you know, if you're down to hundred, cause you just weren't hungry, fine. If you go up to 140, 150 another day, cause you were super hungry, fine. That's a, that's a pretty wide range. So you might say, well, I really want to shoot for 10 grams on each side of that target. You know, instead of 125, could be 115 or 135. So that's totally up to you. But again, look at those, look, look at how the trend lines come out for the whole week. Uh, that's the first thing as a coach that I look for. I, I have spreadsheets and metrics set up so where I can look at the average net daily protein, carbs, fat, weight, et cetera. So if you have a high or a low in there somewhere and I look at that average net, you know, that may only be a couple grams off week to week. So that, that's something I think that's really even more important to look at. And to the point, to the point where you said about that, um, that you can't really tell metabolically. I don't know if you remember when I first met you and I listened to your lecture in Youngstown 16 years ago at, uh, at that camp. Karen Miller. Karen Miller's camp. Yeah. And, uh, I remember coming back and from what I took from you is like when you start metabolizing fat as blood sugar gets low, you don't want your blood sugar real high. I don't know if you remember me telling you this story, but I got like four or five glucometers from a lot of people that were diabetics in here. And I started pricking my finger every friggin' hour thinking that I was going to adjust my food levels and then crap to my blood sugar. And I called you and just telling you I was doing this science research and you started laughing and said, the only thing that I was going to learn from that that after you prick your finger 150 times a day, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and he said, when you walk a flight of steps, it might change your result a bit. And I, and I never will forget that, how stupid I was to think that I'm going to have something so stable by pricking my finger, I can learn exactly when to eat, what to eat, and how much we change from hour to hour, day to day, in movement, activity, sleep, everything it changes everything. So why are we thinking we have to eat exactly the same size meal at the exact same time every yeah. single day, because every single day is not the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I had forgotten that. So I'm glad you reminded me that that is a great story. And there is some truth to like wanting those numbers. Like that is part of actual research, but the context is what's critically important because you can have totally fasted. Your blood sugar was 40. 
then you go sprint a mile and your blood sugar can show 200. And like, what happened? I, I didn't eat anything. That's because your body is going through gluconeogenesis and it's turning body fat and amino acids into glucose. So, you know, you, you, can, you can get that right measurement and it still leads you down the wrong path. So thanks everybody and have an awesome weekend.